Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, the book of John. It's near the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, It's the fourth gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 10, verses 19 through 42 will be our uh, sermon text for this morning. And before we read that, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you uh, for the grace that we have in him. And we pray, Father, that as we look at this uh, part of your word this morning, that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would remind us of your grace, that you would help us to understand it more fully, to rest in Jesus more fully, uh, and then to go out from here ready to serve you more fully in our lives trusting and resting in Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that you would do this work by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said of Jesus, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. I am afraid most of the time. It's true. I'm a realist. Uh, 
which means I'm a pessimist who wants to claim the moral high ground. <laughs> I notice all the dangers, all the risks, all the perils around me. The delicate balance of life is precarious. Things could fall apart at any moment. I mean, haven't we learned that, right? Terrorist attacks, natural disasters, sickness and disease and war. We don't know when these things will come. Now, the truth is, I'm actually not afraid of these big things, perhaps because they are so out of my hands. I can't even pretend to be in control there. But it's the little things in life that scare me. The things that I imagine I can control, that's what makes me anxious. Whether you are afraid of the big things or the little or whether you are living in blissful ignorance of it all, hear the message of our text this morning. The message of our text is that we can rest safe and secure in the hands of Jesus because he and the Father are one. In our text this morning, Jesus promises us safety. No one can snatch us out of his hands. Jesus can back up that promise because he and the Father are one. He has proven his relationship to the Father by the works that he has done. But before we get there, our passage actually begins with a demand. And so we'll look at the demand, tell us plainly, the snag you are not my sheep, the promise, eternal life, the claim that Jesus and the Father are one, and the evidence, works done in the Father's name. So first, the demand. Tell us plainly. Now, there has been division over Jesus for 2,000 years. Uh, people are, are certainly divided over who Jesus is today. Is he a good moral teacher? Is he the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? Is he a rallying point for our social or political causes? Is he a myth? Is he a fantasy, a figment of our imagination? In Jesus' day, there, there may have been different ideas, but the division was no less significant. Again, look at verses 19 to 21. Verse 19, there was again a division over the Jews because of Jesus' words. Many of them said, he has a demon, is, it, is insane, why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This division was not even new here in John. In John 7, 43, we read, so there was a division among the people over him. And in John 9, 16, we read, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. The people are divided over Jesus in Jesus' own day. In general, the, the common folk believed him, while the religious leaders were more skeptical. But the divide crossed even those barriers, because in the end, the crowds cry out, crucify him, while Nicodemus, a Pharisee and leader among the Jews, will take Jesus' dead body and tenderly bury it. The division ran right through the heart of the Jewish people, and it runs right through many hearts today. Well, one day during the Feast of Dedication, which is the Jewish festival called Hanukkah, Jesus was walking in the temple. And the Jews, which in John refers variously to either Jew versus Gentile or Judean versus Galilean, 
who would both be ethnically Israel, or Jewish leaders versus the Jewish people, and here probably means the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, so the, the, the Jews, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, surround Jesus. They're tired of the question, who is this guy? And so they say in verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Just spit it out, Jesus. Right? How long are you going to drag this on? If you are the Christ, just tell us and get it over with. This is their demand. Tell us plainly. Well, how would you answer that question? How would you answer the question, who is Jesus? Is it even a real question to you? Do, do you want to know the answer? Or is it trivia or at most an, an academic question? Well, here it, it at least looks like an honest question or an honest demand, but there's a snag. So point two, the snag, you are not my sheep. Uh, look again at verses 25 and 26. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. You see, they assume that the problem is Jesus. He hasn't been clear. If Jesus were just more clear, this could all be cleared up. The fault belongs to Jesus. But Jesus says, no, I told you, and you still don't believe. You say, tell us plainly, as if I haven't been speaking plainly. But I told you and you still don't believe. The works I do bear witness about me, and we'll come back to those. But you do not believe, verse 26, because you are not among my sheep. Now there are some uh, common themes here. Uh, I think it was Bertrand Russell who is supposed to have said, if he gets to heaven and God says, why didn't you believe? He will answer, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. However, the scriptures teach otherwise, don't they? Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God has made his glory known through the things he has made. The Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, what can, that what can be known about God is plain to men and women because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, Paul concludes, they are without excuse. Again, we'll come back to Jesus' works in a minute, but for now we have a question. If the problem is not that Jesus has been unclear, I told you and you do not believe, he says, why is there still division? If it's not that Jesus is just inherently confusing, why don't people get it? Again, Jesus says in verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Now, there are at least two ways of taking those words, but whichever one we land on, we need to be aware there's, there's also a way of mistaking those words. When Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep, many Christians take that to mean that Jesus' listeners at this point were not chosen from the foundation of the world. They're not his sheep, and therefore, uh, in the deepest sense of that word, they do not believe because they cannot believe, and they never will believe. Now, the doctrine of election, or God's sovereignty over salvation, is a biblical teaching, and the details of which are, are for another time. But the question is, is that what Jesus is teaching here? 
The other option is that Jesus' hearers are not his sheep at that moment, but the situation could change. They could become Jesus' sheep at a later time. I actually think the passage pushes us to the former option, right? That the cause of their unbelief is that the cause of their unbelief is that they are not Jesus' sheep. Jesus' sheep hear his voice and follow him, verse 27. If they don't hear his voice, it's because they are not his sheep. Jesus' sheep are also called in verse 29, those who are given to him by the Father, which echoes John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or John 6, 39, where Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This group of people is specifically contrasted, those who the Father, whom the Father has given to the Son are contrasted with the world in John 17, John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. And then verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. See, those whom the Father gave to Jesus, he gave them to Jesus out of the world. They are his sheep. Now, on either reading, I want us to avoid two mistakes, though. First is, regardless of whether Jesus here means they are not and will never be his sheep, or they are not now but could become so in the future, notice this. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus says he lays down his life for his sheep. Now Jesus says, you are not among my sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for a particular group of people, his sheep. Now, we're not typically born believing. John the Baptist might be a notable exception. Uh, So it doesn't matter whether you come to faith earlier or later. The point is Jesus went to the cross for his people and only his people. The good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. But second, in verse 38, Jesus says, even though they do not believe him, they should believe the works that they might know and understand. He, Jesus is exhorting these men to faith. And what, what this means is, on the human plane, Jesus hasn't given up on his hearers. He continues to exhort them to faith. And we should continue to do the same, right? With our non-believing friends and neighbors, we are in no place to give up on people. Individuals, no matter uh, how bad in a worldly sense, no matter how hard-hearted, no matter how militant in their atheism or non-Christian theism, God is able to change hearts. And so we continue to point them to Jesus, the one who changes hearts and minds. The problem here is not, there is not enough evidence. Jesus has spoken plainly enough about who he is. The, the, the problem is who they are. They are not his sheep. But what does that mean? What is, what is the problem? Jesus in this passage is alluding to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 verse 7 says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Israel was God's sheep. They had heard the voice of their shepherd, but they hardened their hearts despite the fact that they had seen his work. This is exactly what is going on here in this passage. The Jews are hearing the voice of their shepherd, Jesus. They had seen his works, his miraculous signs, but they hardened their hearts. They refused to believe. 
It's not that there was not enough evidence to believe, it's that they refused to believe. Jesus was a threat to them. He threatened their position as leaders in Israel. He threatened their power. He threatened their self-righteousness. They didn't admit who Jesus was because they didn't want to admit who Jesus was. In the very next chapter of John, they will make that explicit. In John eleven forty eight, 48, they say, uh, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They think Jesus is going to steal away their followers and cause a political uproar. Jesus is a threat. Well, again, what about, what about you? What do you have to lose by admitting who Jesus is? What does that threaten in your life? Is it possible that the reason that you don't believe in Jesus or the reason you are not following him is not because there's not enough evidence, but because you don't want to believe? It's not convenient. It's not comfortable. It's not conducive to the way you want to live your life. So first we have this demand, tell us plainly. And second, this, this snag, you are not my sheep. Your, your hearts are hard. You don't believe, not because I haven't told you plainly, but because you don't want to believe. Third, there's this promise, eternal life. This brings us back to, to my fear, to my anxiety, right? There are, there are things that Jesus gets in the way of. There are reasons you might not want to believe. Jesus is not convenient. He doesn't leave you in the driver's seat of your life. Uh, Jesus isn't there to boost your self-confidence or promote your personal brand. Jesus calls us to follow him by saying, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. There is a cost to discipleship. But if you were to do a, a cost-benefit analysis, it's worth it. In fact, Jesus essentially did this for us in Matthew 16, 26. He said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Cost-benefit analysis, right? You can reject Jesus and maybe gain the whole world, but you lose your soul in the process. And to be honest, it's a pretty big gamble that you'll gain the whole world. So is it worth it? Well, here in John 10, Jesus comes at it from the other side. Look at verses 27 to 28. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, what does Jesus promise his sheep who hear his voice and follow him? Three things, one positive and two negative. First, positively, he says, I give them eternal life. Eternal life in John, notice here and elsewhere, it's a present possession. Eternal life is not what happens when you die. It is what Jesus gives you now. Think back to verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus wants to give us abundant, eternal life now. Now, that's not more stuff, right? That's not more health, more wealth, more friends and family. Eternal life is a particular kind of life, the life of Christ in us. Jesus comes to give us life with his Father, life in communion with the triune God. He comes to bring us into an experience of the life of God. Uh, John six fifty seven. he says, as I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. John 10, 14 to 15, I know my own and my own know me just as the, as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Or John 15, 9 to 10, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
In John 17, 20 to 21, Jesus prays that those who believe may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. See, Jesus wants us to bring us into an experience of the life of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's eternal life. Jesus has not come to give us more of the life that perishes and passes away. He comes to, to enable us to partake of the kind of life that is eternal. But this life that is characterized by eternity is eternal, right? It's forever. That's what Jesus says second. He says, they will never perish. Now, I'm not a, a particularly great Greek scholar, but that translation feels weak to me. Uh, first, in the Greek, there's a, there's a double negative. Uh, a double negative in Greek is not like a double negative in English, where the double negative negates itself. That's not the way it works in Greek. A double negative in Greek is for emphasis. And so it's not just that they will never perish, but they will certainly not perish no way, no how. And then the text says, into eternity which is why the ESV says never. But it combines the double negative and the into eternity into one word, never, which seems weak, right? Not wrong, just, just weak. I, I want it all, right? I want to put it all in there. They will certainly not perish, no, not ever. Jesus says, I give them eternal life now, presently, and they will never perish, no, not ever. In the next chapter, Jesus will say, though he dies, even though he dies, yet will he live. And then Jesus adds, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here is the, the great promise of the shepherd. Back in verse 12, Jesus says the hired hand runs when he sees the wolf coming and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Right? Sheep are vulnerable to wolves. We are vulnerable day by day. What Jesus is saying is this, my sheep are not vulnerable. Whatever surface dangers there might be, and there are dangers, threats, and enemies, but Jesus is saying, whatever surface dangers there might be, there is a deeper security. No one can snatch them out of my hand. If you belong to Christ, if you believe in him, if you are a sheep of the good shepherd, if you hear his voice, then you are in his hand. Nothing can change that. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, the psalmist at times felt like God had fallen asleep, that he had abandoned his people. So the psalmist says, and Paul quotes next in Romans 8, 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Right? Is that what it's like, God? Or are we just regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? And then Paul responds in Romans 8, 37 to 39, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever your trials or difficulties, God is not treating you like something unimportant. It's not that he doesn't value you. No, it's that in all these things you will overcome through Christ who loves you. Nothing, no matter the difficulty, can separate, separate you from the love of God in Christ because nothing can snatch you out of your shepherd's hand. And so we have this demand in this passage, tell us plainly, if you are the Christ, let us know. The, the snag, which Jesus says, look, I've told you, but you don't want to believe. The promise, I give my sheep eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. 
And then the claim, Jesus and the Father are one. You know, political figures often make outlandish claims. Uh, They will promise you the moon if you will only vote their way. Uh, Their promises often go unfulfilled because, of course, the political process is much more messy than one person can control. But still, their claims are modest compared to those of Jesus. How can Jesus make such grandiose promises? Who does he think he is to say that he can give eternal life? To say that his people will never perish? I mean, the audacity to make such claims. But he goes on. In verses 29 and 30, he says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, Jesus can make such outlandish claims as to give eternal life to his sheep because he and the Father are one. Now, on the one hand, throughout the Gospel of John, this means that they are one in purpose. They are safe in Jesus' hands, and they are safe in the Father's hands. Jesus said his food was to do the will of the one who sent him and to accomplish his work in John 4, 34. And he seeks not his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him, John 5, 30. Jesus always does things that are pleasing to the Father, John 8, 29. The Father gave Jesus a work to do, and that is what he is doing. Jesus and the Father are one in purpose. But Jesus is saying more than that here. Uh, The Shema is an Old Testament uh, Jewish confession of faith, traditionally recited twice a day, the beginning of which goes like this in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he is echoing the Shema. He is claiming to be one with God, to be God. It is John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if you have any doubt that this is Jesus' claim here, just look at the next verse, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why do they do that? Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? He's obviously pointing out the incongruity of their actions, right? I'm, going, uh, I'm doing good deeds, and you are going to stone me to death. Does this make sense? And their response, however, is in verse 33. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. This is at least the second time they've made this accusation explicit in John's gospel. They did it back in chapter 5, verse 18. And, of course, it won't be the last. This is the reason they will give the governor, Pontius Pilate, when they ask him to put Jesus to death in chapter 19, verse 7. Their problem with Jesus is that he claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus was not just a, a good Jewish rabbi. They would not have killed him for that. His claim is that he is the son of God, that he, being a man, made himself God. That's what they're so upset about. And for that, they pick up stones to stone him. Now, uh, Jesus has a little argument at this point. It's based on Psalm 82. He begins in verse 34, is it not written in your law? Meaning, you say you believe the scriptures, so listen to what the scriptures say. Psalm 82, verse 6, God speaking, uh, says to the judges of the earth, those who judge unjustly, verse 2 of that psalm, 
in Psalm 82, verse 6, he says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die. God is saying there, I put you in a high position as judges over the earth, a godlike position, judges over the nations, but you judged unjustly, and so despite your position, you will die just like other men. But here's Jesus' point in verses 35 and 36. He says, if, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Right? That is, God, God called mere men, quote, gods, lowercase g, men to whom the word of God came. But Jesus is the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. He is not uh, one to whom the word of God came. He is the word who came. And if God can call them gods, how can you say, I am blaspheming when I say, I am the son of God? So how can Jesus make such audacious claims? Because he is the son of God. He and the Father are one. He is Yahweh, the Lord our God, the, the Lord who is one. If you belong to Jesus, you can rest safe and secure in his hands because he and the Father are one. But how do we know? And how do we know that Jesus is not a blasphemer as he was accused in those days? How do we know that his words are not empty? And that brings us to point five, the evidence, works done in the Father's name. The question about Christianity almost always come down, comes down to, if you're debating it with somebody, the question of how do we know? And Jesus often answers that question and repeatedly in the Gospel of John answers it by pointing to the works that he does. John 5, 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Here in John 10, 25, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In John 10, 37 to 38, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. That's a bold statement. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that, they may, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, the truth is, it is these works that cause the division. If it weren't for the works, everyone would just reject Jesus. Uh, but John 2, 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John, 19, John 9, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. In John 10, 21, the beginning of our passage, others say, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? It's the signs that are causing the division because some people are looking at the signs and going, what does this mean? Now, some still ask, but how can we know that Jesus did such things? We weren't there, after all. And the answer is the same way that you know anything historical if you weren't there, whether it happened yesterday or last week or last century, by eyewitness testimony. 
That is what John is giving. That's what the apostles give in the New Testament. He is writing what he saw that you may know. I've quoted John 20, verse 30 and 31 repeatedly. You can go look at that yourself afterwards if you haven't been here. But in 1 John 1, it is also helpful here. 1 John is a letter written by John, not a narrative of Jesus' life, but a letter written to a first century church. And John, the same author as here, begins his letter like this in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John writes that we may know what he heard, saw, and touched with his hands, Jesus, who is eternal life. Jesus came to do the works of his Father. That included his miracles and signs, but even that was really preliminary. Even they pointed forward to something else. Remember earlier in John 10, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See, see what are the works that the Father sent the Son to accomplish? To lay down his life and to take it up again. The Father sent the Son to die for sin, for you and for me, as a shepherd to protect us from ourselves and from the coming judgment, to die for sin and then to rise again from the dead. Why did Jesus come and do that? John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the greatest evidence of who Jesus is. He came as the righteous one to suffer and die and rise from the dead. He came to die to bring us life. This is the greatest evidence of who Jesus is and the greatest evidence that we are safe in his hands, the hands of our good shepherd. Do you see Jesus for who he is, the good shepherd who is one with the Father, the Son of God? Do you struggle to believe that? Well, believe on account of his works. Read the scriptures, read the gospels, read the New Testament, see the works of Jesus. But most of all, believe in Jesus as the one who died and who rose again. And you will be safe in the hands of the Good Shepherd. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus clearly. We pray that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit. Open our eyes to see his works and to believe in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.